Hi, and welcome to episode 143 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Cassandra Thompson joining us. Cassandra is an advocate spreading awareness of and supporting others as they navigate oral restrictions, tongue, lip, and buckle ties. After experiencing dismissive medical professional significant misinformation and a lack of proper support with her infant daughter, she launched the Unbound Network, a community focused on informing, connecting, supporting, and sharing experiences. Using her multifaceted design background, she has started the Unbound Network on Instagram, where she engages through visual storytelling. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have you on the podcast and learn all about your journey. Thank you. I'm very honored that you asked me to be here and uh, to share our story. Yeah. I, you know, as a parent who's been through this, I think that having the perspective of the parents for both one other parents to hear about and two professionals to hear about, um, you know, I know a lot of us professionals work with parents day in and day out, but we don't always get to hear, you know, and, and maybe we do, but we don't always get to hear that raw, like unedited version and experience of what it's like on this level for a parent and baby, you know, that, that infant mother dyad to go through the tethered tissue, airway, feeding, you know, all of the above myo journey that I know you've experienced with your own daughter. So I'm going to turn it over to you and, and let you share with us, if you will, um, you know, your, your journey, which I know you share on Instagram, people can follow you at, um, the unbound network, but, you know, tell us like, how did this unravel for you as a mom and an infant, you know, feeding dyad? Yeah. Um, so I am um, mom to Mari, who is a wonderfully rambunctious, now 19 month old. Um, and, you know, we have had so far quite a journey. And I think like a lot of, um, a lot of experiences, it has been sort of an ongoing process and I think it will continue a bit. Um, But Mari was born at the almost very beginning of the pandemic. And um, pretty early on, we had feeding challenges. I didn't know necessarily that they were feeding challenges at the time, Um, but you know, we, I experienced significant pain um, we had a very scary weight loss uh, scenario happen very early on in her life, around day, you know, let's say day three to four. Um, low supply struggles, um, open mouth posture struggles, snoring, sleeping struggles with Mari, colic, excessive gas, you know, so many, many issues, including um, severe ongoing tension. And, um, you know, ultimately we learned, I, you know, sort of pushed for figuring out what was going on 
And we learned um, around seven weeks that Mari had um, a severe posterior tongue tie, that she had a significant upper lip tie, and also that she had upper buckle, upper cheek ties. Um, and it was a long journey to get to the point where we found professionals who not only understood ties truly and, and the impact and, and you know how all of the symptoms and struggles we had been experiencing were linked, but, um, but also you know, really a team to help support us through the process. It was, it was quite, um, quite a long couple of uh, months. So that journey um, really sort of brought with it a lot of unexpected struggles for us, um, especially I'd say for me as a first time mom and for my husband as a first time um, you know, dad. And um, it, bought, it brought also a lot of unnecessary suffering for our baby. And so I started the Unbound Network, I think really just in response to me feeling frustrated, frankly, that not only did we struggle through this because of the lack of knowledge in the medical you know, professionals that we were relying on, but really because I saw so many other families struggling in the same exact ways. And that's sort of where we are today. Yeah, I mean, it's it, a big passion is born out of not wanting other moms and babies and you know family units to go through what a lot of us have been through. And you know, I know as a mom who experienced it, you know, we had a lot of the same with my first daughter, a lot of the same symptoms that you mentioned. Um, she lost too much weight in the hospital. We had to start, you know, we had to start the weight checks immediately. Like the next day we go home from the hospital the next day, I'm like now trying to get out of bed with my baby to like go to the pediatrician for like daily weight checks. And mm-hmm. it takes a toll. Like you're like, I'm trying to heal and I'm just trying to feed my baby. And here we are like with all these extra things that we need to do. And in the thick of it, really, I know that the intention was good, but it wasn't helpful. It was mm-hmm. anything more harmful because of the additional stress it put on me. I opened up my, my pediatrician's app and it said my child had failure to thrive, but nobody had ever mentioned those words to me. So I'm reading it on my screen for the first time. And it's just like, puts a wrench in your mom heart where you're like, just stick a knife in me and turn it five times. Like mm-hmm. failure to thrive. I'm doing everything I know I can possibly do to just keep this baby thriving and she's failing. Mm-hmm. I'm failing. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. and as a mother, like carrying that weight in addition to all of the postpartum hormones and, you know, it's like, we're in fourth trimester now and yep. there, there's no support. I mean, sure. The pediatrician was great because they asked me questions about me and I know not all pediatricians do that. Um, they were definitely monitoring me for like PPA, PPD, just through all of my infant, um, you know, the child's well checks throughout the first year of life, which I did. Um, and I didn't seem to present with that, but also my internal struggle with not being able to feed mm-hmm. my child when you feel like I have a, like two responsibilities with this child, right. Is like basically to keep them alive. And we do that by keeping them fed and, and clean and, you know, sleep mm-hmm. hygiene is important. And yeah, it's, 
it just was like, I just need to feed this baby and love on this baby. And I'm failing at 50% right now. Like, and it's hard to love on the baby. You feel like you're failing too. So yeah, yeah it's, it's such an impact that nobody, I don't want to say nobody's talking about it, but it's not readily available information. If parents don't know where to look, even in this day and age with, you know, Facebook groups, I know people jump into Facebook groups and they ask questions and on those threads, the divide, even in a tongue tie group of the information that you get for and against and this and that. And I'm going like, this is like maybe more harmful than it is helpful at this point. Do you know, what do you trust? Who do you listen to? How do you even navigate what you're supposed to do next as a parent? I mean, I know professionals in this space who have teams at their fingertips who are like, I don't even know what to do for my own child, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. definitely this underlying issue of like, who do you trust? And I know you and I were chatting mm-hmm. before we hit record and that was a big, a big question of yours as well. So, um, and I know we've had some parallel journeys just in that pediatricians, like let's go there because I know pediatricians, for example, while they're, they're wonderful and they've gone through a lot of schooling and we're not discounting their knowledge for me to have a pediatrician rule out a tongue tie without doing a functional evaluation and mm-hmm. just, oh, well, they're gaining weight. They're on their own weight curve or they can stick their tongue out, which is what we hear frequently from the babies yeah. that treat, you know, that those are not indicators of whether or not a tongue tie is present. Like, let's just throw that out there first and foremost, but mm-hmm. it, it drives me batty <laughs> as a mom and a practitioner that they're dismissive of potentially one of the biggest issues causing those feeding challenges right now that everything else is like trickling down from. And if we could address mm-hmm. this properly, we could save a lot of time, energy, tears, anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. potentially for the mother, you know, the infant mother dyad. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I know you've gone through this. So what was your experience like, you know, going to the pediatrician? Do you feel like they were supportive? Do you feel like they were dismissive? Do you like, what was that like for you? Yeah. So, so I'll say, um, I, I approached my pediatrician after um, a very long late night kind of rabbit hole research process. And um, Mari would have been about five and a half, maybe six weeks old. I'll say five weeks when this happened. Um, And I've shared that I actually happened to come across a random mom's blog. I was researching initially why I had low supply because up until that point, the only thing that I quote unquote knew was that the struggles we were having, why Mari was refusing to nurse, why she was pushing off the breast when she was nursing, why um, we had struggles with positioning and why she had you know, a preference for one breast versus the other and why she had, you know, lost so much weight and why we had to supplement formula. We knew, quote unquote, at that time that all of it related to the fact that my body was not producing enough. And that was a very heavy thing for me as somebody who um, struggled to get to the point of having a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby just wanting to be able to provide for my baby was such an important thing for me. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, families or parents who choose to 
not nurse, not breastfeed, chest feed. But for me, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to do that. Um, So I was researching, you know, why do I have low supply trying to figure this out and came across a mom's blog. And I remember just like crying as I was reading this because I was like, she gets it. This woman, this random woman from another part of the country, it was like a three or four year old blog. Like it wasn't even a new thing. I don't even remember how I came across it, but she understood. And so I then just from reading her blog and her account of what she struggled with, I then like, you know, sort of started understanding what was going on. It also linked to a conversation that I had with a friend who also had struggles and all these things kind of swirled together. And I was like, oh, well, like what causes low supply or, you know, why do some babies have high palates or, you know, it it was just sort of like this mix of research, if you will. And I eventually like got to the point where I was like, oh, what's a lip tie? Oh, that's interesting. Wait, that's what Mari's lip looks like. Is it not supposed to look like that? And so I like eventually just landed on this like, oh, Mari has a lip tie. That's what's causing the issues. That must be why we've struggled. And I'm going to find the right resources for this. So um, I happen to have a client who is a dentist. She's not a pediatric dentist, but she's a dentist. And I reached out to her and I was like, do you have any information about this? Like, do you know anything about ties in general? And she shared that she didn't, but she had a friend who, who you know, does. And she connected and I sent some photos and her, um, her friend was like, yeah, like it does look like she's got a tie going on, like contact your pediatrician. So I did thinking like, I've cracked the case. No questions are, you know, remaining. You're welcome. Let's let's work on the next steps. Or you, <laughs> yeah, ta-da! Right. Um, so I like, uh, yeah, exactly. So I sent a photo and I like explained what I had found and the research and the contacts that I had made and all of this. And I was like, they referred me to this specific hospital. You know, you know, can you, you know, back up this information? And that chat came back with basically, um, you know, ties are a fad and it's unlikely that the feeding struggles you and Mari are having are related to them. And I'll refer you to an ENT just to see what they say, but let's continue on with the course of action. And I was like a little devastated because I really just in my gut felt like, but I really think that this is what's going on. And um, so I was referred to an ENT. That was a terrible experience. And, you know, further put me in this space of confusion and concern and not really knowing what to do or who to go to anymore. And, you know, also when you're a first time parent, being told that you're just nervous because you're a first time parent, or you're just, you know, looking into things that aren't really there because you're a first time parent, 
especially as somebody going through, you know, as you mentioned, that fourth trimester, that's a lot to process. And you begin to question a lot of things, including just like, for me, at least like my own thought process, my own instincts. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I've, um, I've always really prided myself on having good instincts. Yeah. And I felt, yeah, I just felt and was made to feel like a little crazy, actually, like, like that I was just being, you know, that I was just overdoing it. And um, in the back of my head, I was just like, but my baby is struggling and I'm struggling. Yeah. And is there anybody who really can own this process of figuring out why we're struggling? And at the time, I didn't even really know, frankly, how much we were both struggling because everything that I was experiencing was just chalked up to being normal, right? Like it's normal that we would battle thrush for eight weeks. It's normal that I would have cracked and bleeding nipples because, you know, they just have to toughen up. It's my first time nursing. You know, and like it should hurt in the beginning. Like what? (laughs) Right, right. I know now that that's not true, but in the beginning. About all the labels they give babies, right? Oh, they're just a lazy feeder. Oh, they're just lazy feeder. Oh, you know, no, babies are not lazy. Let's stop calling them these Mm -hmm. names. Like no, Mm -hmm. their job is survival and they have to do that feeding. So if they can't, we need to look at like what is going on. They are not choosing volitionally yes need that I'm sorry yes. but like, let's just get yep. rid of that and the whole colic thing I'm like this is a hill I will die on colic is a yes. symptom it is not not a diagnosis so yep. when we have these pediatricians saying oh your baby's just colicky or oh they have reflux let me put you on some medications and I'm like oh like why have mm-hmm. we not tried behavioral interventions beyond just like maybe a, you know and I'm not I'm not going to throw IBCLCs under the bus but I went to one who never looked in the baby's mouth who basically told me I was holding the baby all wrong, who, you know, and I'm like, so there's, you know, and then also there's feeding therapists out there that are not experienced in this either. So I think it's really tricky because we hear these things, we get referred to these professionals who are supposed to be the professional for this issue. And sometimes they don't even have the training, right? You know, I know with my second child, the IBCLC that I went to with the first, like she had gone on to get additional training, which I really commend her for, because now she was looking at things through a different lens. Right. And so while with my first, you know, it, I didn't go to her for my second, but I knew that she was working in my pediatrician's practice and was now looking at things very differently, which is great. But we don't, how do we, how do we gauge that? Like, how do we gauge the level of knowledge? And I know I just went on like five different tangents, but it's like <laughs> back here, but you know, going back to like these terms that we give babies, you know, Oh, is it an, do you have an easy baby? What? Like, define an easy baby versus a challenging or hard baby. No, no, it's just a baby. It is a baby. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept of like, oh, it's just a little tie or just a mild tie. We don't need to do anything about it. Or, you know, like what? No, I'm sorry. Either we have a tie or we don't. This whole like level of, you know, scaling the tie from mild to severe, it's irrelevant how mild or severe it is in appearance. It depends on how much it's impacting the functional ability of this baby to survive and feed, right. and breathe and sleep. And, you know, anyway, so I know I could go on a much longer tangent on all these things, but <laughs> like, 
I know that you've had posts on these things too, just like I have. Yeah. I was like, we have got to have you on this podcast because yeah. I get it as a mom. You're doing such great advocacy out there for other moms to connect with you. And it drives me crazy when I hear, you know, are there medical things that can cause low supply for a mother? Yes, absolutely. But most of the moms that I hear say, oh, I was just told it's my supply. I'm going to anybody look in your baby's mouth. And they're like, oh, why? Why would they do that? I'm like, maybe your baby's not demanding enough milk. Maybe your baby's yeah. fatigued too quickly because they can't pull the milk. Maybe they only get to a certain point and that's why they need to frequently feed, but that's also teaching your body how and when to produce milk. And it's not efficient and it's not, it's not a U issue. Like, you know, again, not discounting that there are reasons why mothers maybe have a low product, low supply. Um, but a lot of the babies we see, it's not a mom supply issue. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, I think it's really so important to acknowledge and go back to the terms that you noted mm-hmm. or in even like more broadly, perhaps like phrases, like yeah. if a baby is colicky, it's because they're uncomfortable. Something's yeah. wrong. They're communicating, right? It takes energy to cry and way more energy for babies to cry for hours in a day. So that, and, and, and I remember having like this aha moment at some point thinking like, but wait a minute, it actually takes energy to cry. Right. So couldn't it be that Mari is crying because that's how she communicates and she's communicating that something is wrong. Yeah. So like, I really reject the term colicky baby. Yeah. Colic is a thing, but it is a symptom. Right. It is not a diagnosis, right? Yeah. Um, same thing with reflux. Like reflux is a symptom. If a baby exp- is experiencing reflux, there's an underlying cause, there's a root cause for it. Are there scenarios where perhaps the reflux is so severe and significant that maybe a baby has to be put on medication? Absolutely. Maybe, uh, sure, you know, hopefully temporarily, but again, there's an underlying cause and, you know, as you know, these scenarios are not always caused by ties, but a lot of times they are. (laughs) So to across the board dismiss, um, discount, cast aside is really detrimental to the health and comfort of families, not just infants, not just, you know, toddlers, adults as well, parents as well. Um, So when we, when we use these terms, colicky baby, reflux baby, lazy feeder, um, Mari was, was given all of those titles. She was a lazy feeder. And I remember also thinking like, well, evolutionarily that doesn't make sense because like a baby's job, right? Their instincts tell them to survive. Their instincts tell them to survive so much that they have the ability to crawl, to get to a nipple, to feed right out of the birth canal. So it didn't make sense to my brain at all that then somebody would suggest that she's just lazy. She's too lazy to eat. And what, and actually when we met with the ENT, um, 
you know, he, he quickly dismissed that um, Mari, the first ENT that, that we saw, I should say. So quickly dismissed that Mari had um, a, a tongue tie. There's no way, no way that she had a tongue tie. But she did have a lip tie. But ties don't cause feeding issues. And, um, oh, I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> oh, well, about that, I'll share my ENT experience. My ENT experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I came back with, from my first mile course and I flipped Lily upside down and I was like, hmm, like I got to look in this kid's mouth. And I saw that she had a lip and a tongue tie. And I was like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. Like, why didn't, like, we were going for weight checks. We were going, I saw an IBCLC. Like, so I take her to the ENT, the first one who's supposed to be the release provider, like ENT release provider in the area. And she's like, well, you're not breastfeeding anymore. She's 24 months old. So we don't need to release those ties. And I was like, stop the madness. (laughs) And she, like, I've referred patients to her. She knew who I was. She knows what I do. And she knew that I had just taken a mile course and that, you know, so here I'm like, I'm like trying to hold back the tears because I'm like, well, shoot, like the person who's supposed to get it in my area doesn't actually get it. Like mind blown, you know, mind blown. I like, I just like, I, I where do I even go from here? Right. So then I take her to another ENT. This ENT is supposed to understand myo doesn't necessarily release infants, but does do, you know, tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, understands airway. And I'm thinking like, he's, he's got to get it. Right. So I take him, I take her there. They, you know, he sees her, we have a whole conversation about like myo study clubbing and like all the things and like, yeah, this is the guy. And they have her hearing checked and like all the things. And he's like, yeah, you know, and I wasn't really going actually to him for the release. Cause I didn't think he was going to release a toddler at 24 months. I did not want to put her under general anesthesia, but he took a look at her size three plus tonsils. And he, his exact words were, I'm unimpressed. And I was like, you're unimpressed. Like, I didn't say that to him because I don't want to be rude, but I was like, I don't even know what you mean by that. You're unimpressed. Well, yeah, what does that mean? Um, okay. Well, we have enlarged tonsils that are veiny looking, but his whole thing was, well, her mouth is usually closed at rest when awake. And, you know, you're telling me that she doesn't get sick that frequently. So she's not like a chronic, like, you know case where she's getting sick all the time. So like, I don't think we really need to do anything about it. Like basically no course of action, zero, none, not like, Hey, come back in three months. Let's just monitor them. Nothing like, Hey, maybe, you know, not that I want to put my kid on antibiotic, but like, no, like even suggestion of that might be a possible, might be a possibility. No suggestion of let's do a scan to look at our adenoids. No suggestion of let's, um, uh, what was like, what was my other one? Um, let's use like a nasal spray or something and see if that shrinks the tonsils. Nothing, nothing at all, which I know are all viable options from other ENTs that I've spoken with Mm -hmm. at this point. And I left there being like, well, that's the end of the road. Like there's nowhere further to go based on that conversation. I mean, okay. I've now been to two ENTs, one specifically for ties, one specifically for the airway, neither of which see an issue. And they're supposed to be the go-to people in my area. Like you have got to be freaking kidding me. I was pissed. Mm -hmm. Then I went to my oral surgeon who I had referred patients to myself was starting to like develop this, like, you know, relationship with, and he was like, well, you know, her, her lip, like, I'm not convinced that we need to address the lip right now. Like it's not impacting her rest posture. And he's like, but I definitely feel like we should address the tongue. And I was like, okay, I disagree about the lip, but you're the provider. And that's not my call. That's out of scope for me to decide. I'm like, Mm-hmm. from an open cup at 24 months. She dumps it all over herself. She can't seem to figure out the oral motor pattern and she doesn't have 
any apraxia. She doesn't have other oral motor issues. You know, she's always, she's actually was like my tight baby who actually hit milestones early. I think because mm-hmm. she's so tight that like she mm-hmm. kind of the stairs early, six months of age, independently crawling up the stairs, seven months in age, backing down the stairs and off of furniture. Like I showed her once and boom, she had it like how to get a low um, couch that we had on our deck. And as soon as I showed her how to do that, like she had the motor pattern for crawling down an entire flight of stairs. That was like one little step basically compared to like an entire flight. And I was like, oh gosh, shoot. Why did I show her that? Like <laughs> I'm like all of, she was the kid at like little gym who was going independently up the rock wall, flipping herself around and scooting down on her butt, like down the other side. And people mm-hmm. were like, how old is she? I was like, she's nine months old. And they were like, what? And I was like, I know. I, I like, she's sure. I don't know what to do with her. Like what is yeah. going on? Well, I later learned she was so tight that it actually like, mm-hmm. you know, to some would say like, okay, it benefited her gross motor development and either kept her on track or even a little ahead of the curve, but everything else, like now she had a tight neck with feeding. She could hold her head up at birth. Not normal. She had a side preference with breastfeeding. Not normal. Like mm-hmm. I was she was struggling. She was a frequent feeder on the breast for 40 minutes, 45 minutes for every feed with maybe an hour break in between because she wasn't pulling enough and she was fatiguing, but she was then kind of just hanging on me. Cause yeah, we did. And, you know, and I would pump on one side while she fed on the other, because she preferred the one side over the other. And, you know, I wanted to create a stash for the freezer so I could go back to work. And it was like all the things, but like, when I look back at this experience and that journey in the first year, and then to still be having these struggles when going to providers, when she was two years old and, you know, finally to find the oral surgeon who did release her tongue, her constipation disappeared overnight. It was mm-hmm. gone the next day. And I was like, what, what, like, like that, that I mean, it's gotta be related. Cause this is something we've been struggling with like pretty hardcore since introducing solids. So, whoa. But yeah, you can't make those claims. Um, and then to see, you know, her evolve and how she changed. And even from a sensory processing standpoint, from the point that we had our tongue released, the point that she went into early expansion at age four, about like halfway through her ALF appliance, she started trying new foods and she, her tonsils, her tonsils shrunk. And I've been yelled at professional groups for making that claim. And I'm like, here are the photos. Here are the dated images. Tell me that her, her tonsils during cold and flu season did not go from a three plus to like a one. Tell me that. Go ahead. Here's the pictures. The only thing that we can do is she still eats dairy and gluten, despite the fact that I would love her not to have as much as she does, knowing that she's got enlarged tissues. I'm like, while eating that stuff during cold and flu season, she's looking pretty dang good. Do we think maybe related and growing her palate and giving her the opportunity to properly nasal breathe where she didn't have the opportunity before. Like, I don't know. I'm just going to throw those things out there, but go try to make these claims, you know, heaven heaven forbid, we think maybe there's a, there's a a connection there. Right. right? So it's, and now there's actually research that's proving everything that I've claimed. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. "Ah." I mean, and that's where you go back to like, you've talked about following your instinct, following your gut, following your intuition. And Mm -hmm. I've always done that, but at the same time, I didn't always trust it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a dental provider. I don't move hard tissue for a living. I work in the soft tissue arena, so I can't make certain claims. Right. And I can't even give advice on certain treatment plans. Cause that's out of scope. I can't say your child needs an elf, but I can say you should go to the dentist and have a consult to see if your child would benefit from expansion. Cause my child did, you know, I can mm-hmm. say like that. And to have that discounted by other professionals was just like, it's enough to get it like as a mom, but then to get it from like professional colleagues too, is like a whole nother mm-hmm. level. And I'm just like, we yeah. 
be supporting these children instead of being so dismissive. We should be asking, why are these things working? Or why is this working? And what is the root cause? Like, like you right. said, there is a root cause and we, our medical industry is in, you know, they're infamous for just slapping the bandaid on it, slap a bandaid on, here's a medication, slap a bandaid on, you know, try this, slap a bandaid on, try that. Instead of taking the time to send you to the right practitioners who can help you truly get down to the root cause. And, and we are seeing in so many of these babies, that root cause is a tiny string under their tongue and their lips, yeah. maybe the buckles, you know, it's like, why are we still so divisive? Why is there still, yeah. a, why are we not helping these babies? Because if you're going to yeah. see in between helping the babies, I really, I just, as a professional, like a professional from one professional to another, you are standing between a baby thriving and surviving and basically hoping that baby just figures out how to compensate really well for the rest of their life. And to me, that's, that's cruel and it's malpractice, honestly, yeah. throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, no, there are like so many things that you touched upon that I'm like, oh my God, we should talk about this. Oh wait, I want to talk about this. So, um, I think <laughs> to like streamline my thoughts in, in wanting to respond I think first I, I want to just acknowledge that like, obviously, and you know this, but obviously it's not just babies that are impacted by this. And I think that's a struggle that a lot of people have, including clearly that second, you know, uh, ENT that you, you saw because the challenges that we see in infancy are usually just the start. Right. And, and we talk about it so often now, I think, and we see so many, I mean, I have a lot of philosophies on why we see so many, um, you know, ties and, and struggles right now. But I do really believe that we are in a moment that allows for conversations like this to happen at a very loud volume, even if and even when there are many people who don't want to hear them. We have social media, which certainly can be, let's be honest, a crapshoot, right? <laughs> like sometimes it's just really unhelpful. Yeah. <laughs> but it also means that a mom like me in the middle of a global pandemic who's in quarantine with a newborn at 3 a.m. can find another mom's blog talking about how she and her baby three and a half years ago experienced the same exact symptoms right? Or through Instagram, we can find resources like you. And so I think that when we're talking about just like finding the path to go and coincide with our intuition, it can be really different for everybody. Finding the proper resources can be really challenging. And whether a child is a day old or five years old or 13, like it can always be challenging. And I think that that is such an important thing to just acknowledge in general. You also noted and said in um, just a little while ago that Lily, Lily, yes, um, experienced a different sensory things. So I kind of just want to touch upon that because, um, so we learned a little late in his life that my nephew, who is now four, um, has, has ties. 
And he was exhibiting some really interesting symptoms that I don't think most people know or realize are always or can be linked to ties. And that included some like food sensory struggles, some ADD, ADHD like symptoms. Um, Mari, I suspected, actually was having some sensory struggles um, around, I sort of always suspected it, but really around like seven, eight months, I was like, okay, yeah, she definitely is. Specifically, she would not allow for us to touch her hands or her feet. Immediately, she would just pull back. It was like a, a, an instant, intuitive reflex that she would do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. She was just always, she was first always very, very tight. And I talk a lot about that um, in general with not only other parents that I'm trying to help, you know, just support and, and walk through the process with, but also just in the, um, on the, on my platform in general, I talk a lot about tension and um, what is so interesting about this. And I, I want to note it and share So we actually have had two separate release journeys with Mari so far in her life. Um, The first was when she was 10 weeks old and we addressed her posterior tongue tie and her upper lip tie. We knew again at the time that she had some upper buckle ties, but her tongue tie and lip ties were so severe that we just knew that that was really the root of, of almost everything she was experiencing. Um, similar to Lily, within about a day or two after her tongue tie release at 10 weeks, Mari's constipation went away. Mm. Isn't that magical? Her, <laughs> yep. Imagine that. Her colic stopped. Yeah. Stopped. Her explosive, she, Mari would go through bouts of um, extreme constipation and then an extreme blowout. All of that stopped. Um, and my, my husband and I used to laugh at how loud she would pass gas. We, we would be on the opposite end of the house and hear it. And that all stopped Mm. magically. But I want to fast forward to her second round of releases that occurred when she was 14 months old. We had to address her upper lip tie again. And we also realized at that time that her buckle ties were actually causing some serious struggles for her. Mm. Her um, upper teeth were coming in and her molars that were just behind her buckle ties were, they were pushing through. We knew that she was teething, but we didn't see them. And she was a cranky little beast for like two and a half straight weeks. And it was so clear that she was cranky because she was just in pain. And it didn't really make sense to us that this was the process that we were, that she was experiencing because normally, you know, you know, they're teething, they pop a tooth it's within a couple of days and it's fine. This was not the case for her molars coming in. And so we learned that not only did it seem like the excessive tissue that was her buckle ties 
were actually potentially causing her molars from to you know not be able to come through but also that it was causing her tension mm-hmm. yeah so we addressed her buckles and her upper lip tie when she was 14 we, uh, 14 months old immediately immediately mari went from never wanting us to even wash or touch her hands in the bath or at a sink to her quite literally pushing her feet out for me to lotion them every single night and massage them. Mm. It's amazing what happens when we take a child out of fight or flight and put them into what we call rest and digest. Like when you allow the nervous system to function properly, Mm -hmm. it's amazing what kind of a child presents to you. And and that's, Mm -hmm. I'll let you continue, but like with Lily, a lot of hers presented in she didn't like tags. She didn't like seams. They weren't things that were like so disruptive that we, you know, couldn't go about our normal day. Um, she doesn't like, she'll get messy, but she wasn't a kid who loved to get messy. Like she would, you know, play with Play-Doh, but then it was like, yeah, I don't really like it. So I'm not going to continue doing it. Or she would try a food and be like, well, I like it, but I don't really want to eat it, which was like very interesting. Or she just wouldn't try it. Um, and she did as a infant, eat a lot of foods until like about 15 months and then just started cutting things out. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, we also had a, an interesting experience with her getting sick from having like five vaccines in one day. And I think that changed like the profile of how she tasted foods as well. Um, but I think there was always this underlying sensory component that I think got majorly triggered at that point too. And when she had her release, it mildly improved, but it was still a struggle in turn. But once she had the expansion and like along with that release that we did everything that didn't start to do the Mayo, that's where like, I think the seams that like that sensory response to the hands, the feet, the tags, like that died down a little bit more in toddlerhood following release in the foods. Like, you know, she would eat a certain variety. I always joked if it didn't have cheese or car, like bread, she probably wouldn't eat it. I mean, that was kind of like her. Um, but Holy cow, let me tell you now, like she, as a six-year-old who is now post release, post expansion back in some Mayo, just to fixed her like frontal lisp at this point, like her oral rest posture is generally good. It's like more the swallow and frontal lisp quality that we're addressing. The girl, like she is just eating every, she had corned beef last weekend. Before that she tried prosciutto. I was like, who are you? And where did, like, what did you do with my child? And she loves salt. So no wonder she likes deli meats, but you know, loves bacon, but will not eat chicken. Will not eat like, you know, she'll eat fish sticks now. And she's slowly like my mom made, um, like fish or I'm sorry, my mom made like homemade chicken tenders and she will eat them. Whereas she would not have touched a 10 foot pole before. And just to see the, the evolution and how quickly it's happening now that she's had all the pieces of the puzzle put into place for her is like, holy cow, even I as a therapist who would throw these kids into feeding therapy without looking at the root cause, like without figuring out why they present this way. And Sure, we worked with OT to address cranial nerves and, you know, other, you know, um, uh, integration of, you know, the systems and the nerves and all the things like we were, we thought we were looking at it from that perspective, but really even our therapy to a certain degree was slapping a bandaid on a much larger issue. And it wasn't until I fell into the world of tots and Mayo that I fully had an appreciation for, oh my gosh, like these kids that end up in therapy for life for a speech disorder, like teenagers that come to me and that I have a tongue tie release and graduate in six months after having seven SLPs and 12 years of therapy. What, 
you know, these kids, these adults who are fatigued because they're realtors and they're tired after a one thirty minute phone call and they have a tongue tie release and they no longer experience that fatigue. And then realize that so many other aspects of their life were actually impacted that they had no idea were impacted until they then experience a different quality of life, you know? So, and those are more mild cases, you know, like we have some more severe examples too. It's just like you said, it snowballs, right? But to see it all evolve from these little minor, what we seem like is like little minor sensory issues of these kids. And you know, if a child presents with sensory issues, if a child presents like ADHD, like qualities, like you mentioned, if a, if a child presents, like they have trouble with attention, focus, you know, they're impulsive, they're picky eaters, they're messy eaters, they're cutting foods out. We need to be looking in their mouth. I mean, then the list goes, they have speech issues. They have delays. We need to be looking in their mouth. We need to be looking under their tongue. We need to be checking their cheeks. We need to be checking their upper and their lower lip because there are seven places that we could potentially have oral ties. And then what I learned that, which was really interesting from Ron Ruska, who is, um, he's behind Postural Restoration Institute, PRI. A lot of PTs can go and get trained through PRI. He offers courses for other professionals too. What he was like, we have ties throughout our body. It's not just in our mouth. And I was like, oh, Okay. I mean, I was like, I've always said we're tied from the, we're literally connected from the tip of our tongue down to the tip of our toes, like from a fascia standpoint. And when you start to think about it, and then you start to think about how, if we are truly tethered and maybe this, this little tether in our mouth and pulls other things up and forward or gets the, you know, creates tension throughout the body. It's no wonder it's putting pressure on nerves. It's putting it all starts to make sense. If you understand science, <laughs> if you start to read about anatomy and physiology, you kind of start to go like, Oh, why is nobody talking about this? And why are we it's through so much therapy that, and I know this will piss off other practitioners, but like, why are we putting them through therapies without looking for that root cause? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to turn it back to you. So you can talk more about like <laughs> the sensory stuff that we were talking about, but it's like, it just sends me on these tangents because it just makes so much sense. And we don't need 5,000 studies to prove these concepts. No, anatomy and physiology, that is the science behind what, what happens when, if you understand normal, we can understand deviation from normal. And then we can understand what we're working towards getting back to so that people can properly function and thrive in life. Okay. And drop my <laughs> Never end rants. In general, don't. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think, oh, wow. There's, I mean, really so many, so many things to say. I, I think I want to, I think I may want to actually share with you and anybody who would be listening two um, stories from adults that um, have been shared with me that really changed sort of my understanding of long-term impacts of ties and, and how often things are missed. So I spoke with a mom um, who who shared with me that her son had not really had, to her knowledge, feeding issues ever, that his issues really and struggles were really around um, not even speech, but that he had always a, um, I I believe it was his right foot, always turned inwards. And he had been to physical therapist after physical therapist after physical therapist. Since the time he was a year old, he was then when I, when we spoke, he was seven. He had been to therapist after therapist. 
And consistently what would happen is he would go to a new therapist, they would work with him, they would see progress. And within a week after that progress was made, his foot would turn back in. And so as parents, like his parents and even, you know, pediatrician, they were experiencing frustration. Why can't physical therapists figure this out? Why can't they, you know, work their magic in a way that fixes the problem? Why do we always have to take him? Why are we, you know, constantly spending money? So they would stop going and then it would get worse and they'd find a new physical therapist. And I don't recall who diagnosed him with a tongue tie. I don't remember what the scenario was, but at some point in their journey, when he was seven years old, somebody connected the fact that he had a tongue tie with this struggle that he was having with his foot. And his mom shared with me that she was like, I honestly thought they were insane. I thought- be connected to our toes. Right. Why that how how would that even remotely make sense? And yeah. Yeah, right. And but I guess um I guess they decided to like release his tongue. And and the way that she described it, she's like, we didn't do it necessarily to fix his foot, but it was, you know, thought that maybe that could be a benefit. And she shared that within a day his foot no longer turned in. It had been like six months and it has not been a problem since. So we were literally connected from the tip of our tongue down to the tip of our toes. And I love that. Yep. 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 Such an interesting, it was such an interesting learn for me in that moment to think like, first as a non-medical professional to think essentially like what are, what, how, how, and what? Like I did not study anatomy and physiology. Like I am a designer, like how I'm not in that world. So that was just like so mind blowing to me to think that there could even possibly be a connection. But the moment that she shared it and I started researching about, you know, the fascia and how your system is really all connected. I as a non-medical professional was like, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. Can't provide. So, <laughs> so for me as a non-medical professional to see and, and, and acknowledge like, oh, that actually does make sense. That in my mind leaves no excuse for any medical or health professional to not be able to make that connection. So there's that, there's that. I'm just gonna, I just said it. Another, um, another scenario that I actually um, learned about was a, a woman in a, a local mom's group. She's in her forties now. And um, at some point I was on social media because, you know, during a pandemic, that's where most of my life has been. Um, but we, uh, there was a group of, of moms just talking about um, speech struggles. And of course, like, you know, now that I'm within this, you know, sort of tots sphere, if you will, my ears immediately, they're like, what speech issues? What, what's happening? Huh? Uh, what? 
Um, and so I'm reading through these comments and this, this mom who's now in her 40s shared that she actually had a severe tongue tie. And what she shared was shocking to me. And she said that growing up, she did not understand why people talked. She didn't understand why anyone would want to speak because it hurt. She was mute until she was six years old. She never said a word until she was six. It was discovered, she had been through a lot of different therapies and it was discovered at some point, somehow those magical unicorns existed in in her area. And she found somebody who said, she has a tongue tie. Yeah, and she probably was mute like they probably gave her a diagnosis of selective mutism which makes me go yes exactly mouth that I've ever seen that occur to because Mm -hmm. I worked with I know early on that had that diagnosis had a tongue tie and a lip tie had a myofunctional disorder and needed expansion went into an alpha appliance and I'm sitting here going like duh why didn't I make that connection Mm -hmm. yep yeah she was she was diagnosed with selective mutism and and so what she shared, and she was basically like encouraging this mom to go forward with speech therapy, but to make sure she's finding the right resources. And so she shared that, you know, at some point when she was six years old, it was discovered she had a tongue tie. They addressed the tongue tie. And she said that she remembers being done with the procedure and looking up at her mom and saying, mom, I can talk. Full sentence. Yeah. Wow. Let alone a single word. Right. Like she, she said a full sentence and she remembers her mom just crying. Yeah. And, you know, I think that what's so challenging for me in this realm is understanding the really significant impact Mm -hmm. these struggles have on health and comfort. Yes. Yeah. And for any medical or health professional to dismiss them, I thoroughly believe is negligent. I agree. I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we all need to do better. I mean, I know we've spent a lot of time talking about like Mari's experience, your experience, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Lily's experience, my, I had a tongue tie, you know, my, uh, these other stories that we've shared. And I think what it goes to show is if there is this much of an impact, like you said, it is completely negligent at this point to be dismissive or just completely ignore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's one thing if you haven't been trained, it's another thing if you have been, or somebody comes to you and says, I think this is going on and you dismiss it, regardless Mm -hmm. of your location as a Mm -hmm provider, you have signed something that says, I will do no harm. You have a due diligence to that patient to go and research it. And if you're not willing to, then refer them to somebody else, you know, specializes in this and who can help either rule in or rule out that diagnosis. And that's Mm -hmm. all I will die on. And like, I think we can even wrap up, wrap up on this note because, you know, it is complete negligence. If you are choosing, that is a choice. If you are choosing to believe old beliefs and you are not connecting them with the specialist that they 
deserve and need to thrive, that is negligent. Mm-hmm. Period. End of story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So on that note, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing your story and your experiences. And I know everybody can follow you on Instagram at the Unbound Network. Um, mm-hmm. That you know what you're doing, you know to me, it doesn't matter that you're not a professional in this space. Like you are taking your story, you're experiencing your experience, you're sharing it so that other moms have a safe place and a knowledgeable space to connect. And, you know, I love seeing information out there. One that's accurate because you have a lot of accurate information on your account. Um, but two, it's like personal experience that other moms can relate to. They know they're not mm-hmm. alone. You know, they, it gives them information that they can then go to Google scholar or just Google in general and research further. And then they are empowered to take this information and questions back to providers and get answers for their children. We should not have to fight this hard as parents, but Mm -hmm. unfortunately that is where we are still living in. And that's why I always encourage people to DM me and I will do my dang like best to connect you with a provider. I know who is airway taught myocentric. that if we can start you on the right path, like to me, that's, you're going to get what you need if you connect with at least one right person in your area. Um, so anyways, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Sharing your story. Yeah. And I will see you on the gram. (laughs) Yes, you will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan, and you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 